Richard, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Richard, and uh, thank you, Downtown Church, for the opportunity to be here with you today. This is an extraordinary day. It probably has significance beyond anything that any of us even realize today. With the limited knowledge that I have, I just go back in my mind when I was a kid, just uh, 169 years ago, and we were worshiping at First Presbyterian Church, uh, up, up now that you would call Poplar Avenue. And those of us who lived in this end of town 169 years ago in 1844, we said, that's too far to walk to go to church. We lived right in this area right here. And we said, that's too far to go to church. Let's start another one. And so we started Second Presbyterian Church right here in this area in a warehouse. And uh, as time grew on, we eventually built a building at Maine and Beale. Can you believe that? A beautiful old uh, uh, Renaissance sort of church building. And then another building, our second one at Hernando and Potatog that barely stands today, known as Claiborne Temple. And then we moved out with the population growth uh, in the middle part of the next century uh, to reach more people out in East Memphis, which is where we are now. And in each case, we were, saying, we were saying, what does Memphis need? How do, we, how do we serve our city? And that's exactly what's been happening with downtown church. You've been asking the question, what does Memphis need? Well, we have cars now. We can get around. Walking's not a problem. But what does Memphis need? And you've been answering that question in the fellowship that you have created under God's gracious providence. And He's given you a mission that is uniquely significant for Memphis, Tennessee. When I travel other places and people ask me about Memphis, they say, what's going on in Memphis? And we know what's going on in Memphis. Uh, The nation has a 15% poverty rate, but 40% of our children in the city limits are in poverty. We need some help. Other people have troubles with their school systems, but we have real troubles with our school systems, don't we? We need help. Other people have relational problems among ethnic groups. But anybody in Memphis knows that what Memphis needs is to have the relationship between historic African-American community and the historic Caucasian community. That relationship to be resolved and for people to learn to love each other. That's what Memphis needs more than anything else. And that's what you're about. Gospel preaching and teaching and gospel living, which always enables people from various backgrounds to find their oneness in Jesus Christ. That's what Memphis needs. And now on the day of your particularization as a local church, let me just say to you, we've only just begun. Because you and we and many others together need to continue to love on Memphis, Tennessee, and to seek to provide under God's power what she needs more than anything else. It's churches like this one. And so we must be determined together to pray that God would give us a vision and give us energy and give us a commitment to see that the entire Shelby County area, the entire Mid-South, is covered with churches like D.C. That's the mission. And so I am especially honored and deeply satisfied to be here today with you on this very, very special occasion. It's a wonderful thing to have leaders like Chris Davis and Richard Reeves with his wife Rachel, 
to lead as a pastoral team. What church knows a blessing like that? Very, very few churches know that kind of leadership. And then to have Michael and Derek ordained and installed today as ruling elders in this church. And there's a team, those four men, leading, serving, caring for a congregation who loves and cares for each other. What a great life. What a great vision. But as we look at Memphis, there are many challenges. And this is a new day for Memphis. Today is. Because what's being done is what Memphis needs. And when we look at the realities of Memphis, Tennessee, we know that Memphis needs what you're doing. Uh, We can look at the unemployment rate in Memphis or almost anywhere else in America. And there are twice as many unemployed African Americans as there are unemployed Caucasians. Something's not right with that. The level of income of African Americans is 62% of the level, average level of income of Caucasians. It's gone up all of 3% since 1967. Something's wrong with that. There are twice as many babies that die when they're delivered who are African Americans as Caucasians. There are four times as many women who die in childbirth who are African American as Caucasians. If you look at the percentage of business equity owned by African Americans in Memphis, Tennessee proper, with a population that's about 65% African American, do you know what the equity number is for African Americans in Memphis? Less than 1%. The level of assets owned by African Americans is 8% of that owned by Caucasians. Something's not right with that. How is this going to be solved? Well, it'll be solved when we become one community. When we really care about our neighbor. And uh, that largely happens when we become a community and we begin to live life together and even have our children marry each other. This way it always happens with ethnic groups in America. And you can see it in one ethnic group after another. 30% of Koreans marry Caucasians. 40% of Chinese marry Caucasians. 50% of Japanese in this country marry Caucasians. 60% of Native Americans marry Caucasians. 2% of African Americans marry Caucasians. There's a deep rift between these two communities. The Gospel solves it. And I want us to look how the Gospel has been solving it for millennia and how only the Gospel solves it. Would you take your Bibles, please, or maybe it's being projected behind me, and let's look at Genesis. You say, Genesis? I thought you'd go to Ephesians or Romans or some book I understand. (laughs) No, Genesis. You can find it. It's the first book in the Bible, for heaven's sakes. And just turn to chapter 45. And while you're turning, let me give you a little background. You know, Memphis is named after another city. Memphis, Egypt. And about 3,900 years ago, and I wasn't born then... 3,900 years ago, Memphis was a very prominent city right on the Nile. It was a city of great power. 
It was an economic center. It had been where the palace of the Pharaoh had lived. He had moved south, but still the Pharaoh would visit there and conduct business in the city of Memphis. And something happened in that city about 3,900 years ago that gives us a picture of what needs to be happening now. Let me give you the background. It's the old story of Joseph. You remember Joseph? He was one of Jacob's 12 sons. And he was one of Jacob's favorite sons. In fact, he probably was the favorite. Why? He was the son of Jacob's favorite wife. Jacob had two of them. And he especially loved Rachel. He loved Leah too, but he really loved Rachel. And Jacob was the firstborn of Rachel. And everybody in the family knew Joseph was Jacob's, the old man's favorite son. In fact, he was so favored, he made a special little coat for Joseph. It was a coat of many colors. Or, as some translations have it, a coat of sleeves. And Joseph liked wearing his coat. And Joseph also was able to interpret dreams. And he had dreams that his father and mother and brothers all bowed down before him. And he was only 17, so he was silly enough to tell everybody about his dream. And make them mad at him. They were really mad at him. So one day when they were miles and miles away keeping the sheep, the old man, Jacob, said, Joseph, my young son, 17 years old, go out and find those guys. Just be sure they're okay. Joseph said, I'll go. So Joseph puts his nice little coat on so everybody remembers he's the favorite son. And he goes looking for them, finally finds them in Dothan. And they want to kill him. Here's their opportunity. Jacob is about 40 miles away. Here's their opportunity to kill Joseph. And they plot to do it until the oldest brother says, no, 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 let's not do that. Just throw him in a pit. And Reuben goes off. The older brother goes off a little bit. And while he's gone, Judah, one of the sons of Leah, comes up with a nice little compromise. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. Somebody here would say, you know what, I'd just soon you kill me. But the brothers, absent Reuben, sold their little brother off to slavery to the Ishmaelites who were on their way to Egypt. So Joseph now is in bonds, sold into slavery. And the brothers go home and tell Daddy that Joseph got eaten by an animal. And they take the blood of a goat and pour it over his new little jacket. And they take the jacket and say, oh, look at this, so sad. And Jacob grieves for the rest of his life because his son has been killed by an animal. But Joseph goes to Egypt, and you know the story. He's sold into slavery to the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, of Pharaoh's house. And he prospers until his wife, Potiphar's wife, tries to have an affair with Joseph. He won't have anything to do with it. She lies about him, gets him in trouble. He's thrown in prison. Now he's been sold into slavery. Now he's in prison. And once again, he tells dreams. He interprets dreams. And because of that, he begins to develop a reputation. And one of the guys whose dreams was interpreted ends up going back to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh when he has a dream, Oh, I know somebody who, has, who can interpret dreams. Well, go get him. So they go get Joseph, clean him up, shave him up, and he goes in front of Pharaoh and interprets his dream that there are going to be seven years of famine, or seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. So Pharaoh, the dream you had is to tell you to stock your warehouses with plenty of food, and then you can sell it off, and you'll be a very wealthy man, and you can keep Egypt united. And that's what he does. So because of that, Pharaoh 
tells Joseph that you have the run of the whole place. You are completely in charge. It's more than prime minister. It's prime minister plus. I'm the Pharaoh, but you're the chief operating officer of the entire nation of Egypt, one of the most powerful nations in the world. So Joseph is on top of the world. Meanwhile, the famine eventually hits Canaan. And Jacob, the old man, says, Hey, I hear they're selling stuff in Egypt. Why don't you guys go get it? So all the brothers, except for Benjamin, who was Rachel's only other son, the younger full brother of Jacob, of Joseph. Remember, everybody else is a half-brother, but Benjamin's a full brother. Benjamin's held back because the old man doesn't want the other son of Rachel to get in any trouble. So he pampers Benjamin, keeps him at home. And I'm sure Benjamin said, Daddy, let me go. No, you stay right here. And he sends the other boys, and they go to buy grain. And who sees them coming but Joseph, who, of course, looks nothing like he did when he was 17. He's now 30 years old. He's in his magisterial garb. He's speaking fluent Egyptian. And he's held up on a very high pedestal, and it's only the servants that are dealing with his brothers as they enter to buy. But he recognizes them. And he knows every word of Hebrew that they're speaking to each other. He knows exactly what they're saying. He looks at them, and you can imagine how he felt. Those are the men who sold me into slavery as a compromise not to kill me. And Joseph now is stuck with what he's going to do. And that's where we pick up in the text. Because what's happened is, he's very gracious to them. And he gives them grain, and he tells them, you come, if you come back again, come with Benjamin. You told me you had a little brother. You have, to bring, you have to prove the truth. Bring your little brother. So they run out of grain in Canaan. And Jacob says, y'all get some more. And they said, Daddy, we already told you. We can't go back to that man unless we bring our little brother. How did he know you had a little brother? We had to tell him. He just seemed to know everything. It's okay. I'll just go to my grave in grief. Go ahead and take Benjamin. So they take Benjamin back. And you remember what happened in the previous chapter here, chapter 44. Joseph tells his servants to put his silver cup in Benjamin's sack. So they go on their way back to Canaan. The Egyptians then pursue them and say, hey, who stole the cup? We didn't steal the cup. Well, we're going to look through all these sacks. Well, they say, well, if you find anybody who stole the the, 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 uh, prime minister's cup, you, you can take his life. So confident were they. Well, they find the cup in Benjamin's sack and the brothers are terrified. And they go back and plead with Joseph not to keep Benjamin, which he was threatening to do. Let's pick up the story then. After Judah had interceded, here's what, Joseph, here's what Moses says about what Joseph did. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. Or the word there really is stunned. They were stunned at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for you, for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Therefore I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. God, help us to understand and believe his word, and into his name be glory forevermore. Amen. Can you all hear okay? Would you rather I use a handheld? Is that okay? Okay. I don't hear complaints. Joseph was being very gracious. So much so that we would all admire his self-control. He had before him ten men who had wished him dead and had sold him into slavery. And by an enormous act of self-control, he did not take their lives. He had all the power to do that. No one would have asked any questions. Joseph had unlimited powers in Pharaoh's kingdom. And Joseph, rather, sent them back to their home with supplies and cared for them. All Joseph asked was, if you come again, bring me the little brother you say you have. And if you'll follow the narrative in Genesis 41, 42, 43, 44, you'll see that Joseph actually has two people in mind. He has his daddy Jacob in mind, because he says here, is my dad alive? He hadn't seen him in in 13 years. And he was an old man. He was now 130 years old. So he might not be alive. Joseph said, is my dad alive? And the other one he cared for was Benjamin. He shared DNA with Benjamin. Yes. Right there? All right, how's that? All right. All you need is a little instruction from the tech guy. You, you are covered. All right. Give me some more instructions if it doesn't work. All right. All right. All right. Thank you. Is that better? It sure sounds better to me. Yay. Hallelujah. There is a God. <laughs> and smart tech people. And preachers bow down regularly to tech people. Because we can do all the talking we want to. It does no good if you don't hear us. Joseph had two concerns. One was his daddy and one was his forebrother. That's what he wanted. And he showed enormous restraint in not killing his half-brothers. Which he could easily have done and it would have been justified. And most powerful people would have done it. 
Joseph was extremely gracious. Some people wonder why is it that Joseph sent everybody out of the room so that he could cry. He had wept on other occasions, but he had gone off by himself to weep. In this case, he tells everybody to leave the room except for his family, and he's going to weep loudly in front of them. And there are different theories. Some people believe that what Joseph was doing was testing his brothers to see if they had learned their lesson. And the word testing is used in these chapters. And the thought is Joseph is testing them to see if they've learned anything, to see if he can trust them. That's a possible theory. But I think the text is showing us something else. I don't think Joseph was so much testing his brothers. I think God was testing Joseph. And when you look in the text, there, you, know, you look in the Bible, there are very few people about who, whom very bad things aren't revealed. I mean, Paul killed people because they're Christians. Peter was a coward. I mean, you know, just look at any of the characters. They're all flawed. But Daniel and Joseph end up coming out pretty clean, don't they? You can't, you, you, it's hard to get the dirt on Joseph. Ah, oh, he was 17 years old. He bragged. Well, he was 17, so what? If you're 17, you probably do too. And if you're 87, you probably do too. But Joseph is known as an upright person. And Joseph was being very gracious. I think the reason Joseph broke down is Joseph realized Joseph wasn't being gracious enough because God's grace is greater than our grace. And God wanted more out of Joseph than simply not to kill the ones who put him into slavery. God wanted Joseph to love them. God didn't want Joseph just to tolerate his brothers, his half-brothers, and send them home. God wanted Joseph to embrace his brothers and have a deep and abiding affection for them. Joseph realized he was trapped. And I believe that he broke down and wept the loudest he had ever wept in his life. Because perhaps for the first time, he was beginning to realize how gracious God really is. And His grace is more than simply a civic-minded, civil, kind, and generous person. His grace is a deep, abiding affection for people who don't deserve it. That's the reason Jesus ultimately dies on the cross. I believe Joseph learned gospel grace in chapter 44. And that's the reason in these first three verses you see him breaking down, sobbing, realizing that he was to love Simeon and Judah and Issachar and Dan and Reuben. Secondly, when Joseph after he reveals himself, if you'll look at verses 4 through 8, you'll see a theme there that cannot be missed. In fact, the great New Testament scholar Gordon Wenham said, or the Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says, this is the key to the entire Joseph narrative. That Joseph says to them, this was not you who did this to me. This was the Lord. And he had me sold into slavery so that he could preserve a remnant 
so that he would have survivors. Joseph had been through some horrendous experiences that would make him wonder, what in the world is God doing if there is one? I've been sold into slavery by my brothers. I've been thrown into prison unjustly. I've been lied about that I had an affair when I didn't. Is there even a God? Can you imagine the thoughts that must have gone through Joseph's dreamy mind when he was in prison unjustly for years, wondering what is the deity up to? And here's what he'd learned over the past 13 years. God's purposes are higher than our purposes. I don't know why he burns houses down. I haven't figured that one out yet. But he does. I don't know why he lets our loved ones die when we don't expect it. I don't know why he does that. But he does. It's called providence. By his great power and wisdom and love, God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. He governs and superintends all of his creation, all of his creatures, and all of their actions. He's in control of everything, and Joseph learned it. And he not only learned that he's in control, what Joseph learned is that God controls everything for the good of his people. You ever heard of Romans 8.28? (laughs) There's the most famous verse on God's gracious providence that we know that in all things, says Paul, God works together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Joseph learned that. That even when things seem terrible, and sometimes in planting a church and being a church, it looks like things are terrible. You've got to remember something. God's purposes are higher than our purposes. And we don't know everything. But eventually we'll find out more than we know now. And that's what happened to Joseph. He taught his brothers. And basically said to them, don't you fear me. Because I've learned something. It's called God's providence. And that's a very helpful lesson for every broken family to understand. So first of all, God's grace is greater than our grace. Secondly, His purposes are higher than our purposes. But thirdly, and most importantly for our purposes here today, His family is bigger than our family. The well-known scholar, Dr. James Cone, an African-American who's now 75 years old, originally from Arkansas. Back in 1969, some of you will remember the book, Black Theology and Black Power, said on one occasion that the big problem that black theology has to solve is this conundrum. How can an oppressed people worship the same God as the God of their oppressors. That's the problem that black liberation theology sets out to solve. Got some really good news for you this morning. You got the solution right in front of you in Genesis 45. All the inequities that we've mentioned in Memphis, they all have deep, deep roots of oppression. How do we solve such a problem? Here's what Joseph had learned. I can't pick my brothers. I can't decide that because I'm fully related 
to Benjamin that he's going to be the only one I keep. And if you look at the desperate attempts of Joseph throughout these chapters, he's trying every manipulative form of devious behavior that's very righteous and tolerant and gentlemanly. He's doing everything that he can. Send those half-brothers home and keep my little brother. That's all I want. And God says to him, you're not able to do that. Because you know why? I love my whole family. And what you find Joseph eventually realizing is, if he tries to keep Benjamin, and only Benjamin, he's going to kill his father. Because Judah, the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and who's David's greater son, Judah was the one who said, but Mr. Commander... Mr. Prime Minister, you don't know our daddy, but if we go back without this little brother of ours, he will die in grief and sorrow. And Joseph realized he's breaking his father's heart when he seeks to take one of his brothers and not all of them. And Joseph's idea of family is far too inadequate. The only answer for Joseph and for Israel, God was teaching him was, You need to embrace every single one of your brothers and your sisters. Now think with me for just a moment. Who was writing this? And to whom was he writing? It was Moses. 430 years later. To whom is he writing? All those brothers, children, and grandchildren, and great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren who don't get along very well. And they're in the wilderness. And they're, ready, they're getting ready to go into business in Canaan. Spiritual business. They're on a mission. And they're going to be very different from the Canaanites. In terms of their sexual and marital ethic. In terms of how they love the poor or don't love the poor. In terms of how they worship God or don't worship Him. They're going to be very different in what they think human beings' fundamental problem is and what the only solution is. They're going to be very different. And if they go into Canaan and they're acting in Canaan like they are in the wilderness, they're not going to make it because they're not getting along very well. And Moses is saying, let me tell you something about your heritage. Y'all have reasons to hate each other. And when you were at your best, you tolerated each other. Let me tell you about Jacob's 12 sons. There's one of them who was badly, badly, badly mistreated. And who was a real gentleman. And let me tell you, children of Israel, what God taught him. That gentlemanliness is not enough. And your idea of being committed and loyal to people that are close to you is not enough. But you will deal as family with every one of God's people. And so you Ephraimites, you're going to get along with the Judahites. You Benjaminites, you're going to get along with the the ones from Issachar. You Danites, you're going to get along with the Reubenites. Because we're one family. This solves the problem of how an oppressed people can worship the same God as the God of their oppressor. And this is what Memphis, Tennessee so desperately needs. And this is why, my dear brothers and sisters, I and your brothers and sisters at Second Presbyterian Church and all who are informed around the world take great joy today 
that the family is acting like family before the face of our Father who is in heaven. I encourage you today to be generous in your giving because when we give to God in preparation for the ordinations and installations and particularations that are going to take place in just a moment, we're expressing our gratitude to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who by His own blood has secured family love for all of His children. Amen.